for God. We have as human persons a voracious thirst and everybody has it. And a human being is alive intellectually and volitionally, mind and will, to the extent that this individual wonders. Because a communion with God is not independent of how we live. And so also, if we want this deep immersion with God, we've got to live a certain lifestyle. Our thirst for God. Deep in the human heart, every human heart, of every man and woman on the planet, there's a profound need for more than what this world can offer. Welcome to Prayer Quest. I'm Father Thomas Duve, Marist priest, and we continue this, in this segment of our discussion where we left off last time. And you will remember that I was giving you, considering with you, several different ways in which we know that every one of us has an insatiable hunger and a thirst for more than we experience on the face of the earth. We considered a psychotherapist, eminent novelist, we considered our own experience, we all have this profound need because we're spirit in the flesh. No one else in visible creation has it. Psalm 42 puts the matter so well. As the deer longs for the running waters, so my soul longs for you, O God. A thirst is my soul for God, the living God. We pick up at that point, and we want now to consider that God, therefore, following from everything we have said, is the sole solution to the human puzzle. Because you and I are really incarnated puzzles. No other being in visible creation has the kind of problems we do. St. Augustine put this in magnificent classical terms in his Confessions, that book of praising God, he who, Augustine, who was a great sinner, both sins of the flesh and sins of the mind, converted to God and became a saint. And in this course of his, uh, just a masterpiece of a discussion, a, a treatment, it's a whole book-length prayer, as a matter of fact, Augustine said these words to God. You have made us, O God, for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. No one can argue successfully with St. Augustine unless he has experienced the various highest degrees of infused prayer, the transforming union, because Augustine, in speaking of all his experiences on earth, finding them just terrifically less, than anything he experiences in God, Augustine having had first-hand contact with all of life's experiences, from being a natural talent, a genius he was, talented, uh, he was a famous rhetorician of his day, a literary figure, he was capable of human friendship in a lofty degree, even while he was in sin, he was still capable of a lofty natural friendship. He was a philosopher, a theologian, eventually, and he experienced all types of human pleasures, sinful pleasures of the flesh, 
pride of mind, and he talks about both of them, both of them most delicately in his book, but he's plain as he can be. And Augustine, having experienced everything that this world has to offer, makes that tremendous statement, you have made us, O God, for yourself. Augustine knew from experience that we can't be made for this world because we are incarnated thirsts, as we said last time. No one rightly disagrees with Augustine until that person has experienced all the pleasures from the lowest of earth. Well, we don't have to experience all the lowest pleasures of earth, but we have enough temptation and experience of human life to know what they must be like, but we must have experience of the highest pleasures to disagree with Augustine. And his judgment is completely in accord with, and in a way with our own experience, though many of us haven't grown as far as Augustine did. St. Bonaventure, who lived several centuries after Augustine, another doctor of the church, however, wrote a book which he called, and I'll give you the English translation of it, literally, The Journey of the Mind, the Person, into God. He wrote in Latin, and the expression he used, in deum, the journey of the human person, in deum, means into so that it wouldn't be quite adequate to translate Bonaventure to mean uh, a journey to God, mainly, mainly, namely coming up to a point, but not getting into God. Augustine has in mind that we are to be immersed in God himself. Bonaventure, therefore, like Augustine before him, was speaking of the ecstatic immersion of the human person in the Lord himself. Endless beauty, love, joy, delight. Psalm 62, in just a few words, Only in God is my soul at rest. Notice once again, in God, not simply knowing about him or praying in words toward him, but an immersion into him. And only there is the human person at rest. And we spoke about that last time at some length. In his letter to the Ephesians, I want to pick up where we touched a bit last time. Augustine, pardon me, St. Paul, speaking of the limitless love of Christ himself, then adds, until knowing the love of Christ, which is beyond all knowledge, you are filled with the utter fullness of God. This is the answer to the human puzzle. And Augustine is speaking of it, Bonaventure is speaking of it, all the mystics speak of it in one way or another. And you and I, therefore, are to be profoundly immersed in God himself. And then St. Paul adds in the next verse, Glory be to him whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Notice now, thus far in our series, last time and this, how many times that word infinite is coming up, which distinguishes us from every other being in visible creation. We've got this endless yearning for unlimited joy, delight, happiness, knowing, loving, and the promise of God is the solution to the problem. Glory be to him whose power working in us can do infinitely more, endlessly more than we can even ask or imagine. 
Now I should like to ask the question, what follows from what we have been saying last time and now in this segment? If we seek our quenching in God alone, where it can be found and nowhere else, we could say then and must say that we will make it in life. And if we don't seek our quenching in God, we are not going to make it in life. And I must say a word, what do I mean by make it in life? I don't mean what the world means. Uh, lots of prosperity, financial prosperity, prestige, power, pleasure. Many would say that is making it in life. It's not what we mean here. God has far better plans for you and me. By make it in life, I mean what we have in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. That chapter 16 is an allegorical history of God's people. And they were crude and rude at the beginning. But after God worked on them and they accepted his work of beautification, here is what happened to those who said yes to God. You were exceedingly beautiful with the dignity of a queen. You were renowned among the nations for your beauty, perfect as it was, because of my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. By the expression I used, make it in life, I mean therefore precisely what Ezekiel means unimaginable transformation into divine beauty himself, uh, while non, not to be understood in a pantheistic sense, of course. God remains God, but we have a divine beauty, even though we are not God literally. This is St. Paul's idea also in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, speaking of where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, genuine freedom. Paul then adds, we, with our unveiled faces reflecting like mirrors, the brightness of the Lord, are transformed from one glory to another into the image that we reflect. This is the work of the Lord. That follows from being quenched at the fountain in a deep prayer life. Secondly, it follows that every human being has this aching need for God this, this vast void, a need for God, and as we have already noted, even though an atheist may well say, I have no need for God, I'm perfectly content here on earth, I renounce him, I even don't admit he exists, the atheist still has that aching need. As Peter put it in John's Gospel, chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. There is no other answer. And so the person who rejects God, either explicitly or in lifestyle, is really saying, I am choosing finite reality. And as we noted in our last segment, this never satisfies and cannot satisfy anybody by nature. Thirdly, it follows that contemplative prayer is deeply rooted in this aching need we have for God. Indeed, vocal prayer is. Liturgical prayer is. We are, all of us in our prayer lives, yearning and, and extending ourselves and giving ourselves to be immersed in God himself. Our need for truth, love, joy, 
and beauty. And contemplation is precisely this deep immersion in God, which he gives, we begin in discursive prayer, as we noted last time, meditation, and as we grow in that, God begins to give a new awareness and love of himself, a profound intimacy that grows to the fullness that Ezekiel talks about. Fourthly, it follows that all earthly promises of pleasure and power and prestige pale in, compar in comparison with this immersion in God. They end, of course, in the finality of death, not to mention the eternal disaster of hell. That is, if one pursues these things for themselves to the exclusion of God, you have an eternal disaster, of course. As the Lord himself put it, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and suffers the loss of his soul? It's a rhetorical question, of course. It doesn't profit him a bit. The fifth conclusion that follows from all we have been saying is that if a person really pursues God and aims to find his quenching, the solution to his puzzle, our being puzzles in the flesh, find the solution in God, scandals cease. The mass media in our day is full of scandals. The papers are full of accounts of dishonesty in high places sometimes, sexual harassment of women, teenage pregnancies, marital infidelities, child abuse, rape, all sorts of, of deception in human life. And if one is really seeking a quenching in God, it doesn't mean that this person has no temptations, but it does mean that this person is going to overcome them. It is true, and I surely freely admit it, not, not only admit it, but assert it, that some of these scandals in our day, sometimes in prominent people, have an emotional dimension to them, at least at times, but there certainly is also a question of guilt, very often. It's not for me to decide when that is the case, God knows that. But there is no doubt that a lessening of moral fiber in a nation is very much connected with worldliness. Prayerful men and women acquire a divine kind of strength. All of us are weak reeds. As the preface for the Mass of Martyrs puts it, God chooses the weak of this world and makes them strong. So martyr like St. Thomas More, St. Josephat, or St. Polycarp, very early, the apostles, they were all weak, as you and I are weak, but because they say a complete yes to God, he gives them the strength. And so if a person, wounded as we are, we're all wounded, all of us ordinary people, if a person seeks his quenching in God, a purity of moral life, is a consequence of it, and that is not difficult to understand. There's a new purity, a new honesty, a, a new dislike of avarice, pride, and lust. And this consequence leads us to our last one. Namely, as one is deeply immersed in God, in a prayer life, and is being quenched as a consequence of the deep prayer, 
that person finds that temptations themselves lessen in their severity. I don't say that they disappear completely, but they surely do become less. The concupiscence, which is a rather fancy word for inclination to evil, as one grows in intimacy with God, concupiscence, the inclination to wrongdoing, becomes weaker and weaker. Even in the height of prayer growth, the transforming union, it just about disappears. You might have trouble believing that, but the transforming union, the depth of prayer communion with God, is really a transformation. There are some few people in our world that never lose baptismal innocence which means that they never commit a serious sin. St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Aloysius were among these, as far as we can tell. They never lost their baptismal innocence. But other saints had lost it, Magdalene, Augustine, and even these people who did lose their innocence before God in a serious manner, these people do regain a tremendous power and even in them, concupiscence lessens. I don't say it disappears entirely. Augustine candidly confessed in his Confessions, the book, that he did experience temptations against chastity, even after his conversion. But they become less and less as one is more deeply immersed in God himself. A marvelous result of seeking our quenching in God. As a matter of fact, it's one among many proofs of God's existence that it is the virtuous, those deeply immersed in him, that can live the, the moral purity that the gospel speaks of. They live it. They're proofs in the flesh that God works this sort of thing. Nobody else can. Now, I should like to raise at this point a little question that also flows from what we've been talking about. Why should we pray? And by prayer I mean our vocal prayers, our Father's Hail Mary's morning prayer, evening prayer, prayer before and after meals. I mean, of course, very much liturgical prayer and most of all, celebration of Mass itself. Why should we pray? If we were to take a poll of typical Americans who do pray, and if we were to ask them, well, why do you pray? A goodly number would say, um, I pray especially when I'm in trouble, when I'm sick, when I need a job, when I fail at things, or when I don't want to fail. I pray for God's help. And this is a good thing to do, of course. Our Lord himself said, ask and you shall receive. Knock and it shall be opened. And so vocal prayer is very good. But there's more to prayer than this vocal prayer. I don't think of a hundred people who were asked, people who pray, remember, if you ask them why they pray, pray, I don't think too many would say, well, I pray because I'm in love with God. I pray because I want to be more deeply immersed in Him. I want Him to receive my prayer and my love. I don't think many do that. And while we should pray for health or may pray for health and pray for a job if we don't have one, Atheists do not exist in foxholes, as the saying has put it. There are no atheists in foxholes. Valid as all that is, 
the main reason, that is the main reason from the point of view of human fulfillment, and it expresses the greatest of all the commandments, is a total love of God with whole heart, whole soul, whole mind, and all of our strength. And it is that kind of prayer that we're speaking about mostly. We cannot be fulfilled without love, of course. And the more deeply we love, the more deep our prayer life, the more deeply we're going to be transformed in the beauty of which Ezekiel speaks. We are now ready to proceed on to the next area of our discussion. God fills us to the extent that we really want to be filled with Him. As Psalm 81 puts it, Open wide your mouth, and I will fill you. Or, as Our Lady in the Magnificat expressed it, God fills the hungry with good things. But we need to remember that He doesn't force His filling, His quenching, on anyone. And that brings us to our next area of discussion. We're going to be talking now about impediments to quenching. It does not happen automatically. We have to be living in a certain manner that it can happen. St. Angela of Foligno made the remark, as given to her by the Lord himself, he speaking, make yourself a capacity and I will make myself a torrent. Notice, God wants to give himself completely to you. And with this imagery of water that we've been using now, he doesn't want to give you only a trickle. He wants to give you a torrent of himself. But make yourself a capacity. Notice God does not push himself on anyone. Now, I want, therefore, to talk about making ourselves a capacity for God able to drink the torrent of fulfillment that he wants for us. And the first thing we will talk about, levels of conversion. Most people, I suspect, when they hear the word conversion in the context of avoiding sin, think in terms of serious sin, mortal sin. And therefore, they have in mind in conversion an about-face. Conversion does mean about-face. Uh, a turning 180 degrees in an opposite direction. What they have in mind, most people, I think, when they hear the word conversion, a turning from something finite to the exclusion of God, serious sin, 180 degrees toward God. And that is correct. That is the first level of conversion. However, there are a couple other ones. But before we look at the other levels, let me give you St. Paul's way of speaking of this first kind of conversion. Because obviously there cannot be any quenching, any fulfillment when a person is alienated from God. In ch chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul says, when self-indulgence is at work, the results are obvious. And then he lists a whole number of serious sins, fornication, gross indecency, idolatry, uh, feuds, wrangling, orgies, drunkenness, etc. And then in verse 22, what the Spirit of God brings is very different. Love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That is a conversion from the first type of living to the second type. The second level of conversion bears on avoiding deliberate venial sin. This is expressed in Scripture in various ways. In Revelation 3, there is the image, vivid imagery, of the lukewarm person, the person who doesn't mind committing deliberate venial sins. Uh, I, would, I would vomit you out of my mouth, says God. You're neither hot nor cold. You're mediocre. You're lukewarm. Conversion from deliberate venial sin is the second level. The third level of, of conversion is perhaps the least understood of all. Namely, the totality of the saints. They not only avoid mortal sin, not only avoid any deliberate venial sin, but they give more than they really have to give. They're total people. That is expressed, for example, in Psalm 119, verse 4, verse 10, rather. With my whole heart I seek you. Notice the psalmist does not say, with most of my heart, with 98% of it, I seek you. No, the whole heart. That is typical of the saint. St. Paul speaks of this level of conversion in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Before the world was made, God chose us in Christ to be holy and spotless, to live through love in his presence. That is the way a saint lives holy, spotless, living through love in the divine presence. I might mention three rapid little signs of conversion to the second and third level. One of them is the earnest resolution, the resolve to give God everything, to please Him in everything. If you're deeply in love with another person, you want to please that person in small details, not only in some the sacrament of reconciliation, well received, is another sign of real conversion all the way. And an earnest contemplative prayer life is the third, third sign that you really have gone all the way with God. Teach us, good Lord, to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the costs, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not ask for any reward, save that of knowing that we do your will. <laughs> 